Stefan Molyneux, welcome to Northeast Truth. Thank you so much. It's uh, great to be here. Excellent. It's absolutely fantastic to be talking to you tonight, Stefan. Uh, basically, tonight, uh, Stefan's going to be discussing um, anarcho-capitalism and all things to do with that uh, as a concept and in relation to other issues. And uh, the notion of self-ownership and sovereignty and all things to do with that as well. Um, Stefan, I almost don't know where to start. You've got such a <laughs> huge repertoire of uh, stuff out there in, in the ether, if you like. Self-ownership, should we start with that? I think that's a, that's a great idea. Excellent. Well, yeah, self-ownership as an idea is a, a really good term. Um, we use terms like sovereign and um, free man, and uh, there's a whole range of terms. But essentially, the... They accommodate the same fundamental concept, yeah? Yeah, I mean, you sort of introduced me with the term anarcho-capitalism, which is, I mean, it's, it sounds like a technical mouthful, and, and it sounds like something that should be, uh, you know, crawling up the side of your garage uh, that might need a stiff shoe to the head. So, um, I mean, I try not to define my belief system by conclusions, right? So, like, a yeah. biologist doesn't say, I'm a Darwinist, right? He says, I'm a biologist, and I accept you know, Darwinian, Darwinian evolution as a valid theory. I am a philosopher and I accept that if you consistently apply the non-aggression principle, which is that the initiation of force is immoral, if you consistently apply that, you end up with anarchism as the only moral, valid and practical uh, social uh -huh. form of organization. So uh, again, it, it's it's I know it's all over my website, but I'm sort of trying not to define myself by conclusions. But if we say that, you know, hitting people and, and, and stealing from them and all that and is wrong, then we have to say that that's wrong for everyone. I mean, either it's not wrong or it is. And if it is wrong, then it's wrong for everyone. And therefore, something like taxation, which is a socially acceptable form of theft where the initiation of force is used to take money from people, uh, then that can't be right. I mean, it can't be right for some guy in a blue costume to do something and it, and then wrong for some guy not in a blue costume to do something. So that's really the basic argument. Uh, I wish it were more complicated than that because then I could claim to be some brain-spanning genius. Mm. But it really is, uh, I think that the only real intelligence in the world is accepting the simplest and most consistent of ideas. And that is, uh, that's one that I, I just have found irresistible and impossible to find a way around. Yeah, I mean, it boils it right down doesn't it, essentially? That is the fundamental uh, principle on, on which any right-thinking human society has got to be based on. You, we live in a what you would describe as a coercive society, yeah? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, and with all due respect to modernity, which I am a big fan of, because otherwise we would be having this conversation over an extremely long piece of string with two yogurt cups at the end. So I'm a big fan of modernity and I'm a big fan of the free market. And we've made great strides as a species in eliminating the validity of violence in many social organ like so we don't have um, uh, organized and and violent marriages like that are dictated by parents or by society or by priests so we don't you know we have voluntarism in our marriage uh, we are no longer assigned to our jobs like they were in the middle ages like you just inherited your dad's occupation and so on or like you got in sort of soviet russia or other kinds of dictatorships we've made incredible strides forward in bringing voluntarism to uh, to things and now it's considered generally unacceptable to you know beat the hell out of your kids and so on which in the past was considered not only acceptable but morally necessary in order for them to be you know good christians and citizens 
So mm. we've made great strides forward, but there are still huge areas in society where this rule of nonviolence doesn't apply. I mean, just look at something as simple as education. Education for the young is paid for by threatening people with throwing them in jail if they don't fork over their cash for it. Like, so kidnapping and imprisonment is how we fund education. It's how we fund charity. It's how we fund healthcare. It's how we fund retirement. And there's this massive blind spot when it comes to violence in terms of that form of social organization. So we just, we have to keep pushing and expanding the conversation about nonviolence. It started off as a tiny speck and now we're sort of trying to enlarge it and enlarge it because until it becomes a general principle and we don't have these massive exceptions like, well, I'm against violence uh, unless kids need to be educated, then let's pull back the trigger, right? We just have yeah. to keep expanding it until people accept it as a general notion and then I think we'll be living in a far better world. It's uh, Essentially, we have this peculiar thing where as a base principle, we teach our children that <laughs> um, violence and bullying's wrong by bullying them with, and threatening them with violence. And, well, but then yeah. as you grow up, you, you discover that there's a dichotomy between these base principles of um, non-aggressive behavior and the actual way the world works in reality. So, um, well, we, Sorry, I agree with you. We, we teach kids like it's simple, right? Like we don't say to kids, well, bullying is wrong unless you're doing it to yeah. a rich kid to help out a poor kid. You know, like you, you, you can't steal someone's lunch money unless you, you, you take five quid from them, you know, give two quid to the, yeah. to the poor kid and keep three quid for yourself. You, you can't. Right. So we give them these rules. Kids are like it's just wrong. It's just plain wrong. But then when they grow up and they sort of try to apply those same rules that they were taught as kids to society as whole, suddenly we're like, well, it's complicated. There's a social contract and there's democracy yeah. and you can vote or you can leave the country. And none of these rules we apply to them as kids. And I think it makes kids kind of cynical in the long run. Yeah, it's kind of a betrayal of the ethics that we're brought up with, isn't it? So usually, uh, yeah, I'm, let, I'm you know, let's, let's be consistent, right? If we're going to say that it's okay for some people to steal on behalf of the poor, which isn't the real motivation, but at least it's the cover that's given for that kind of yeah. theft, uh, then uh, let's just make it okay for everyone. Uh, but of course, we realize that the moment we make it okay for everyone, it simply can't work. Like if, if the poor should have the money of the better off, let's eliminate the government as a middleman and just let them go steal whatever they want. But we realize society can't work if we apply the values that we hold at a government level. Society can't work if we extend it to everyone, which should make us kind of suspicious of those values, but that's not often what happens. Yeah, the government is essentially claiming to hold the monopoly on the use of violence, isn't it? Yeah, I, it's, I mean, I think it's more than a claim. If I, I'm just, I just spent two days doing my taxes, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm on fire about this particular topic. So, yeah, I mean, they, 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 totally they beaten. No, oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, it's bend over and grab your shoelaces time in Canada. Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. I'm, I'm in the fortunate position of having dropped right out of the whole system at the minute, so until uh, I fall down the next bear pit, I'm sort of <laughs> relieved of having to do, perform all those duties. Excellent. Just, <laughs> the, if you can just type your address then in, into Skype, we'll, we'll all just come and live with you because it sounds like the way to go. You have a nice shack in the woods, is that right, or castle in the clouds? Um, most well, actually, it's, a, it's the most itinerant, um, unromantic lifestyle you could possibly live. Being off the grid, you spend most of your life sofa surfing amongst your friends and uh, <laughs> right. house, house sitting, if at all possible, where the, it uh, facilitated. But yeah, it, there's nothing uh, good about it at the moment. The, right, we'll the house it for internet set up to prevent it. You know, 
right? We'll house it for internet access, right? <laughs> I We'll have shit for hedge funds. <laughs> right. What, I mean, when we're talking about the actual notion of the nature of society, um, one of the things that you um, helped formulate in my mind was the notion of extending the the personal realm, if, if you like, into the public realm. So the same um, ethical, moral rules that you almost expected to live by on a on an individual basis should apply in the macro world. Is that, I, mean, I haven't really explained that very well. Can no, you no. You think, I think you just did a better job than I think I took about 800 pages to say, <laughs> to say the same thing. So you get the job of editing my next book. Um, look, <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I wrote in this, this free book of mine. It's on freedomainradio.com called Everyday Anarchy. And the basic idea is this. People say, well, anarchy is just a bad thing. Anarchy is just, wow, it's chaos. It's Mel Gibson on fire riding a motorcycle through some guys with mohawks or whatever. And yeah. that's all nonsense because there is a huge amount of our lives where we treasure anarchy. And anarchy, of course, doesn't mean chaos. Uh, anarchy simply means without a violent ruler. I mean, that's all that anarchy means is, is without a violent – it simply means the absence of government. It's like yeah. atheism simply means – uh, an acceptance of the non-existence of God. It doesn't mean having babies for breakfast or whatever nonsense people try and make up about it. So anarchy simply means without a violent ruler, without a central coercive agency called the state. And we love that so much. I mean, if, if someone were to try and pass a law in a Western society that said, uh, you, you know, the government is now going to tell you uh, who to marry. I mean, okay, I guess, you know, three fat, ugly guys would cheer, but everybody else would be like, well, that's appalling. We can't have the government tell us who to marry. Or if the if the government were to say, well, the, we, you know, we take your kids when they're born and we'll raise them for you, people would be just justly appalled at that notion. So the idea, okay, the huge areas in our life where if a violent hierarchy was imposed, we'd be shocked and appalled. So we love anarchy. We love anarchy. We treasure anarchy. I mean, if the government were to say, here's the only newspapers you can read, people would go up in arms. They'd be appalled. So I just wanted to point out that in, in our everyday lives, we love anarchy. We love if the government said you can only shop uh, on this aisle in this grocery store, right? But we like having that choice. We like not being told what to do. But then there's this other realm where things – there's this huge burst of static and then up is down, black is white, uh, gravity is anti-gravity and so on where everything has changed completely. And it's the complete reversal, right? So – we we love all of this voluntarism and and freedom and and lack of coercion in our lives and then we cross over to this realm called society and suddenly morality is completely reversed so where you and i can't steal the government must steal where you and i can't counterfeit currency the government must counterfeit currency or it's immoral, like it's immoral for the, it's immoral for you and i to do it but it's immoral for the government to not do it uh, yeah. You and I can't uh, uh, go and get our kids' education at the point of a gun, but the government has to or it's really immoral. And philosophy has always been at war, and, and it's a grim, bloody 2,500-year battle so far. Philosophy has always been at war with this reverse dimension, this – I don't even know what to call it, this like, you know, fracked up headspace of complete moral inversal. And that yeah. is something that we're constantly attacking. I mean, it happened in the realm of, of religion where people said, well, this is how we define existence in the personal world. Uh, but but 
you know, now there's this other existence where there are deities and so on. So philosophy is just continually pushing back this crazy realm that people invent so that they can get away literally with theft and murder. And so we're trying to push back and say, well, no, there is no other realm. There are only people. There is no other realm called society. There is no public space. There are only people doing stuff. And if, if it's wrong for you and I, it has to be wrong for everyone. Yeah. I mean, it's essentially this. It, 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 it's almost Orwellian in the, the reverse speak, isn't it? Essentially, you've got the, the mainstream, if you like, the, the public realm that operates on precisely the premises that it forbids the personal realm to even contemplate. Right, and, and, really. and where people where people at the personal level would be appalled, right? So if you and I said, okay, let's pass these laws which say the government now assigns who to marry, I mean, people would go insane and mental. Uh, they would consider this a gross violation of, um, of their rights. Uh, and yet there's this, you know, this whole area of space that people step into. It's like... It's like another personality takes over. You know, you go from, you know, the, the kindly old guy in the corner whittling his stick and handing out lemonade to some grim Boo Radley sociopath who has to force everyone to do everything he wants and call it virtue. It's, it's really unhealthy. I mean, it's unhealthy mentally. I mean, it's unhealthy psychologically, and it certainly is irrational morally. So would you see the, 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 the sort of modern history of man as being the era of exploitation then? Is that essentially what we're... Because you're talking about co-opting people's autonomy to uh, one particular ego. Well, I I think that the history of human beings as a whole has been uh, of exploitation, right? So I think my most popular video is called The Story of Your Enslavement, which is the basic idea is that the most valuable resource that human beings can control is not land or or animals or, or, or anything like that, or, or even the means of production, uh, the most valuable resource that human beings can own is other human beings. Mm-hmm. And that, that is, uh, we have to look, when you look at a map of the world, you're, what you're looking at is a series of tax farms, right? So these, yeah. these aren't countries, these are farms. And uh, in it, you have owners, right? This is the ruling class, the political class, the, the, um, the financial class. Uh, the, I mean, I don't mean anybody who works with money, but these you know, these rat bastards who go around raping the body politic for the sake of short-term gains in the financial sector, uh, based entirely upon fiat currency, government loans, government control of interest rates. That's nasty, nasty fascistic stuff. Uh, those people uh, own us, and they, uh, they threaten us with uh, imprisonment and death if we don't hand over our money and our kids and our lives. Uh, and uh, we have to look at ourselves as livestock and the country as a farm, and the government as the farmer. Uh, that is the only metaphor that really makes sense. What I think happened in the 20th century, from sort of the late 19th century to the 20th century, which I think is not discussed as much as it should be, is that you really can't understand the 20th century unless you understand that there was an entire class called aristocrats and priests who ran out of juice. <laughs> and they ran out of... Uh, uh, they, their whole system collapsed in the 19th century. So in most of Europe... The aristocracy was ditched and the church as uh, a sort of place where people could go to uh, lie for a living, uh, that the church collapsed as well as far as its general social power and control. And so you have this whole class of people who are brought up to be parasites and would find it completely unthinkable to actually in, in, interact with voluntary in, – in a voluntary way in a free society. So what they – they had to invent new philosophies – to fool people 
uh, into creating another entity where they could all, right? So it's like one ship goes down and they have to you know, quickly get another ship to go land on. Otherwise, they have to swim with everyone else. And yeah. so if you look at you know, communism and fascism and socialism, even Fabian socialism, it's, it's all about just creating another home for these parasites. So they all – the ship of the aristocracy was going down. The ship of the uh, church was going down. So they all scurried over to the state. And the state, which formerly had been sort of a night watchman state where it was really just around the protection of property and the provision of common defense – and the, I mean, small, there was no, no even, no income tax, right? Which is not acceptable to the ruling classes. They have to have lots of money because they're greedy. And so they all swarmed over to the state. And that's why uh, you get these huge governments, huge growth in governments. So it was all coincidental with the collapse of religion and uh, the collapse of the aristocracy. These people just invented a new philosophy uh, called socialism, fascism, communism, which allowed them to go over and grow the power of the state. And uh, then they engaged in endless wars, just as they did when they were aristocrats and just as they did when they were running the um, the priestly class. It was just endless wars. And uh, we're still uh, we're still in the middle of that that battle. These parasites are still swarming all over the state and yeah. using it to control us. The sort of parasitic philosophy uh, survives by every time it's threatened, it rebrands itself. That's a kind of way I tend to look at it. The, yeah, the, and the good thing is, I think this is the last ship. Like, there's no other place to go, right? So once we can deal with the state, uh, then we can, I think, really look forward to a, a very free society. But uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the collapse of religion and the collapse of the aristocracy, it was like taking a balloon and pushing in one end. You know, all that happens is the yeah. other end bulges out and we're like, hey, we're free. I mean, think of the French Revolution. They wanted to get rid of the priests. They wanted to get rid of the exploitive capitalists, which I would agree with. And they wanted to get rid of the aristocracy. And they did. And what did they do? Well, all they did was they pushed all of these jerks over to the government and ended up with a tyrannical reign of terror. And the same thing yeah. happened in Russia. The same thing happened in, in Germany. It is uh, it is wretched. Um, if you just chase down an immediate enemy without general principles, all you do is displace him to some other new and usually more dangerous area. Uh, well, generally speaking, uh, the the sort of body politic model that they employ is just a duplicate of the one that they're replacing with different figureheads. You know, yeah, that's right. So the religion of of uh, God. Uh, transmutes itself to the religion of the state where you have, you know, <laughs> I mean, with, with God, you've got all these crucifixes and with the religion of the state, you have giant heads carved into Mount Rushmore and uh, you have the veneration of people like Winston Churchill and all you end up with is with new secular saints, new secular mythologies. Uh, people have people have a very hard time living in reality. Uh, reality is uh, is not a comfortable place for most people, and it's not because reality is inherently threatening. I think we all quite like reality, but uh, unfortunately, we're told so many lies when we're growing up that reality becomes the enemy of our very identity later on in life. Which well, it's a common theme that we keep coming back to on Northeast Truth that um, essentially a perpetual state of fear and the. Resulting neurological dumbing down that results from that flight or flight response is a major tool in perception management in the modern dichotomy. I think there's a, the, if they can keep you perpetually in a state of rabbit in the headlights, you'll uh, you won't be able to cognize sufficiently to put it all together. So you, and inevitably, then you're victimized by. A, a moray that you don't understand. I mean, if you don't know the rules of the game, and but you're forced to be in it until you can learn the rules, you're in a catch-22, aren't you? Right. Now, where uh, where do you guys see, um, where's your approach as to where this uh, where this fear is coming from? Or how do you inflict it? I think mostly it's, uh, 
a highly sophisticated and concerted manipulation of the media. Um, and just a whole, it's a kind of a case, put it simplistically, you're so busy running on the rat wheel just to keep hold of the white goods that you've got that um, you just simply can't see through the subliminal that's being fired at you constantly on from TV and the media and the, the actual world we live in, I suppose. I mean, I don't know whether that explains it very well, but I, I think media control is a constant um, recurring theme. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. I mean, if you if you look at the WikiLeaks thing at the moment, uh, I mean, it's a it's genius, right? I mean, you have to hand yeah. it to the masters. There's a reason why they're the masters, right? I mean, it's genius because now everyone is talking about these rape allegations rather than the contents of the WikiLeaks cables. I mean, that is, I mean, and there are very few people I think who believe these allegations against this guy, but the purpose is achieved either way. Right. I mean, because if people believe it's true, then they'll dismiss him as a bad guy or whatever. But if they believe it's false, they'll still talk about these allegations rather than the contents of the cables uh, that are coming out. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's the usual distraction techniques and the, the change the emphasis. Not it, First, it went from the content of the leaks themselves to the morality behind the leaker. <laughs> right. And then from from that is the individual, the the guy himself now has a big question mark over his head. No matter what happens, he, that's uh, that can never go away. It's mud that sticks, isn't it? So he, his credibility is undermined as a human being. With the yeah, absolutely. The, the media has always reminded me of uh, you know if you ever go to the zoo, uh, you know when the monkeys are are angry or upset or frightened, they'll hurl their own feces yeah. at things. Well, that's really all the media does. To me, there's there's two components to controlling human beings. The one is physical abuse and the other is verbal abuse. Uh, the physical abuse is handled by the state in terms of kidnapping and coercion and imprisonment. But the verbal abuse is handled by the media. And uh, it's a typical sort of male-female thing, right? So in, in dysfunctional families, very often, it's not always the case, but, you know, the dad is the guy who hits and the mom is the, is the, guy, is the person who's the verbal abuser, even if she's just threatening the kids with dad hitting them. And that, to yeah. me, is where the sort of state and the media show up in people's minds uh, when they're adults. Uh, it just shows up uh, uh, in that uh, if they can't get you through force, then they will just get you through verbal abuse. And all of these allegations seem definitely to fall into that category. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had an interesting event. I don't know whether you've seen this. So you're in Canada, yeah? Yeah. Um, at the student demonstrations yesterday, a guy called Jody McIntyre, who suffers from cerebral palsy, was at one of the demonstrations, and it was caught on camera as the police attacked him and dragged him from his wheelchair and dragged him across the street and basically abused and knocked him about. Um Interestingly, he was then interviewed on the BBC later that day. Fan- did a fantastic job, to be honest, Stephanie. He's, he, he suffers from cerebral palsy, so obviously his speech is a little bit affected, but he really did himself the greatest of credit on the interview because the BBC's interviewer, the presenter guy, attacked him from start to finish. He even accused him of threatening the police by rolling his wheelchair in the, their general direction. Yeah, it was right. absolutely scandalous to listen to. But it's a classic example of um, what you're saying about the best... In a circumstance like that, the, where there was basically no defence for it, they had no option but to go on the attack. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, in the United States, there's lots of um, cases that are rolling around at the moment. One recent one that comes to mind is this kid was uh, filming at a school while a um, 
a police officer beat up a kid and slammed his head against the side of a bus. And uh, the kid, of course, was the one who and the kid who filmed was the one who ended up getting uh, getting charged. Right. So it's it's not, as I said in a recent video, it's not it's not the guy who who kills the guy who gets charged. It's the guy who reports the crime. Who's the murderer? The witness. Uh, but see, this is—I mean, this is the amazing thing about this modern media technology, of course, right? Which is that, uh, I mean, the the visibility into the true actions of the ruling class are available. Available. Yeah. I mean, you, you, who ever saw police brutality in the 1950s? You just unless you were actually there at the scene. Yeah, unless you were there, it was never show, You'd never see that on TV. So, the, the, I mean, there is a kind of. You know, the, the government has always – we've always felt that the government is watching us. You know, the government, they yeah. can go through our bank accounts. They can go through our health records. They can go through whatever they want. They, they, you know, we are an open book to them. But what's fascinating now, and I think this is one of the things that WikiLeaks is exposing, is that the tables have been turned a little bit. Not a huge amount, but it's significant that the government now also feels that we're watching them. That yeah. their actions are revealed – like if some officer beats up someone – uh, you can upload it anonymously uh, from some internet cafe, and then it's visible, right? So the actions of the ruling classes are now becoming visible in a way that was never the case before. I did an interview with a guy uh, a little while back. Uh, he he um, He's a filmmaker, and he made a film called The War on Kids, which is I highly recommend. And he was able to do – to interview just about everyone except – he was absolutely forbidden to bring his cameras into a government school. They simply flat out refused to and, – and if you never see this, right? You never see footage from inside a government school. And when you think about it, I mean that's really kind of drop, jaw-dropping. I mean we're the ones paying for this damn thing. We're the one paying for this whole system. But you can't get a documentary to go into some inner city school to see what goes on in these classrooms. They just they, – they simply don't want anybody uh, to see. But – you can get this footage, you can upload it, it can be shared worldwide. So I think for the first time in history, the government feels that they're a little bit in the spotlight. They're a little bit uh, having the, the lens turned on them. And I think that's very unsettling for them because they do uh, never, they never want to be seen in their naked uh, nastiness, so to speak. Well, it is about keeping up the illusion, isn't it? It's partly what we've been talking about with the demonstrations in the UK at the moment in that they're uh, we're wondering whether an entire generation at the moment's been taught that no matter how many of them protest, and even if they manage to do it peacefully, the politicians will still flatly ignore them. I think there's almost the the state are trying to send the signal that despite the fact that peaceful protest is the prescribed way to effect change, they want this generation to realise that it doesn't really. You know what I mean? There's, um, yeah. And as you say... The, their problem is that they're having difficulty controlling our perceptions if we're freely able to look around and see it other than via the means that they're projecting at us by. You know, the mainstream media is in their pocket without a doubt, So, and it's carefully managed to manage our perceptions. But if you were free, autonomously looking around the internet, choosing what you want to see and how your opinions are formed, there's, a, there's an extent of that. You know, it is like you say, it's worrying to them that they're losing control of the group mind. Right, right. Well, I mean, when in the 16th century, when Martin Luther translated the Bible into the vernacular and handed it out to anybody who could read, people got access to the original information rather than that which had been carefully filtered by the Catholic Church. 
And yeah. that broke apart Christendom and led to, I mean, centuries of religious war, which we're not going to have, but uh, it led to the breakdown of religion in the long run. And the same thing, of course, is occurring now. Now, the the student riots, I think, are quite fascinating. I'd like to talk about those for a few minutes, if that's all right with you. Uh, Now, what they're complaining about, as far as I understand it, is that the government in its austerity measures, right? (laughs) Because the austerity always and forever applies only to the people who are not responsible for the cost overruns, right? So uh, it is not like some kid who's 17 who wants to go to university. He's certainly not responsible for the massive deficit that's been piling up since the First World War. But he's the one who has to pay, right? Because the people who who actually uh, are responsible for it, they then they can never pay because they're the ones in charge or they're the ones who are currently um, uh, heavy voters like the the old. But so there's been like a doubling or in some cases a tripling of university fees, uh, and that is what is causing people to to have these protests. Is that fairly accurate? Yeah, that's pretty much sums it up. Yeah, yeah but it's not actually the interesting thing. I think that the add to that, Stefan, is that. The generation, the current uh, students that are demonstrating won't actually be affected by the the future plans. They let the, so there's an interesting degree of abstraction in that they're protesting on behalf of the people that come after them, which I do think has a, quite a significant bearing. That's interesting, um, yeah. Yeah, because you know, we, essentially we're supposed to be the, um, you know, look after number one generation, if you like. <laughs> And these kids are clearly showing that even though it doesn't affect them directly, morally and ethically, and for the sake of those to come in front of them, something needs to be done. And I didn't think they had that in them, to be honest. I'd almost dismissed the student um, as a, a realistic um, means of change. You know, I didn't think the student body were at all interested anymore. You know? Oh, yeah, yeah it, it's... It's very important not to underestimate the young. I mean, generation by generation, we're just getting smarter. I mean, that's just a biological fact that seems to be very well borne out by research. And uh, so they're they're smarter than me, for sure. A, a lot of them and my younger listeners are just jaw-droppingly brilliant. But uh, so when, when do these provisions kick in that they're protesting? Um, essentially, it'll be, I presume, in two or three years' time when the actual things come in. Because the politicians obviously crafted it hoping that they would avoid um, any major kickoff about it, precisely yeah. because it didn't affect the, the current student body. So I'm assuming it's basically about three years, whatever it takes to get a degree nowadays. Right. And I mean, it will affect people who want to go into graduate school or whatever, but uh, unless, uh, yeah. yeah. So so I think it is quite admirable that they're fighting this as a particular kind of principle. And they certainly are being taught a sort of very important lesson about um, – about the government. I mean, one of the things that's very true is that uh, young people are very often shielded from the true cost of social programs until you get that, that jaw-dropping moment where you you go and get a job and your first paycheck is like half what you thought it was going to be because of the taxes. <laughs> you know, but by then you're in your sort of early to mid-20s and your opinions have largely been formed. But, you know, we spend a lot of time and effort shielding young people from the true reality of who's paying for things and, and what is going on in the world until such a time whereas the reality can't really puncture the defensive delusions and ideologies that have been set up. But it is quite admirable that they're going for that. Stephen. I'm sorry? Do you think they're deliberately kept in ignorance of the reality so that they're ill-equipped to deal with it when it comes? Because let's face it, I mean, a, a kid that starts to learn about the realities of the financial world after he's actually entered into it at the distinct disadvantage, isn't he? Oh, yeah, for sure. And yeah, I, mean, I, mean, I was in my mid-20s before I even understood the mortgage, uh, um, the reality of the mortgage situation. But by that time, I already had a mortgage. 
So, right. you know. Right. Well, I mean, this, this comes down to the question of what is the degree to which the control in society is sort of deliberately and consciously planned and to what degree is it a kind of instinct for domination that occurs? I don't believe, and I know that there's lots of people who do believe this, and uh, I'm certainly open to more evidence. I don't believe that there's, you know, one giant smoky back room at the UN where this stuff's all plotted on PowerPoints and wall charts. I do believe that human beings have an incredible they have an incredible set of instincts for domination, whether it's of the natural world or animals or other human beings, which is to say is the most valuable resource. I don't think you need to say that a pride of lions has to consciously plot out how they're going to catch the antelope, right? They just have great instincts for how to do it, right? I mean, there are these um, these sharks even, that, and sharks are not the brightest of creatures. They swim in these tight circles slowly gathering all the fish together and then they go and feed them. This is not planned out ahead of time like, Brucey, you take the left one. You know, Sammy, you take the right one. They don't sort of have walkie-talkies or anything. They just have this great instinct for exploiting the natural resources around them. And I think that's true of human beings as well. Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, people who are like abusive husbands, they don't have to go to a, a class called how to be an abusive husband in order to know that they have to break down the will of their wife, that they have to isolate her, that they have to, uh, you know, uh, make her put herself down. They have to constantly mess with her head. They have to make her blame herself. Like, you don't have to go to a, a class to learn all this stuff. People just have an instinct for domination and exploitation. Um, so, so it's a base program like, that we all have, if you like. Isn't it? Yeah, it's a base program. I mean, because, because, I mean, biologically, that would just be the selected approach. Anybody who had a really good instinct for exploiting and dominating other human beings would end up rising up in any kind of violent hierarchy, whether it's Stone Age or 21st century. Anybody who's a really good manipulator of other human beings is going to rise up any hierarchy, therefore is going to have more resources there, is going to have more children, or if, you know the children that they have are going to survive longer. So that gene that, or there's probably a whole set of genes that helps us to manipulate and control and bully and exploit other human beings is just genetically selected. And uh, and then there's two sets, right? So there's the one set that is genetically selected to dominate and control, and there's another set that is selected to obey and hide, right? To sort of stay still. Because in throughout most of human history, there was a violent hierarchy, the violence of which was almost always kept hidden from those around. And there was a slave class, and the slave class survived by not rocking the boat, because anybody who tried to uh, overtake the master classes uh, would uh, would get killed, right? So that whoever was a natural rebel, you know, Spartacus or whatever, right? That person would be killed. So that gene would kind of be weeded out. So I think that we're just in a kind of, it's like two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that fit together, dominance and submission. And there are times when somebody is born submissive in the dominant classes and vice versa, but for the most part, it's pretty stable. And I think that there are so many common methods, like there are probably 5,000 prides uh, of lions around the world and they all hunt kind of the same way and there are lots and but they don't all get together right they don't have a big convention of lions and say okay this year we're going to switch tactics a little bit we're going to go you know a little bit more through the bushes and a little bit less over the grass or whatever yeah, they just all do it kind of the same time. way yeah they just they just do all do it the same way because there's there's just the best way to do it and that's how their instincts have developed so i think that people mistake the commonality of social control for some sort of plan or some sort of plot, but I don't think that's necessary in order to explain it. Mm. Well, I, I, so I have a slightly different take, and I, I think probably I, 
broadly think that every human on the planet has a, a score or a, a scale, if you like, of behavior from the most evil to the, the, the most divine, if you like. And obviously people have natural inclinations to put, posit them further up and down the scale. But generally speaking, I think that we're all capable of the most evil and the most good. And it's ultimately a, an issue of um, self-awareness being aware that we all have that um, darker side to us and choosing to to do the right thing, if you like, you do. But well, I, I mean, think that's, that's yeah. Good. I think that's very accurate. And I think people who deny their dark side psychologically end up projecting it onto somebody else and calling them bad, and then having every excuse in the world to attack them and and all that. So yeah, I think I think that's a very very good way of putting it. Do you not think that people that do that is it's a consequence of simply the lack of self awareness? Right. Yeah, I mean, certainly, 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 this is why I'm constantly pounding on people, uh, you know, verbally and, and hopefully encouragingly, uh, who want to take the path of mere politics in order to free the world, uh, yeah, right? Because the, the world is only going to be free when we're free of illusions, right? Because, I mean, religion is an illusion. The state is something that doesn't exist. People get mad at the government. It's like there's no such thing as the government. There's buildings and there's people, and some of those people have guns, and some of those people have moral theories that they inflict on children that are false. But uh, there's no such thing as the government. So it's just getting people to free themselves from their illusions, but it's hard for people to free themselves from their illusions. It's emotionally painful. Uh, it is like taking a giant uh, Band-Aid or sticky plaster, you know, off a very furry part of your brain that's been on for 20 years. I mean, it's very painful. Uh, it is like getting a, um, you know, a good oiled spanking on a very sunburnt buttock. Oh, that's a great metaphor for you to work. If you have visuals, <laughs> feel free to put in something slow motion there. It was very painful. <laughs> We're going to cut that bit out and use it as the advert for the, for the, All right. the, show, the show, I think, because that's a, about the best metaphor I've heard for weeks. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so so it, it's very painful for people to go through that. But uh, if you don't know about why you resist the truth, you have no chance of achieving it. And to, mm -hmm. to know why you resist the truth requires introspection. It requires self-knowledge uh, and, and a real pursuit of a, a genuine understanding of your own soul and motivations. And that's a hard thing for people to do. I think partly because we're just resistant to doing it because it's unsettling. And also partly, I think, as you said, that people are just so, they're, you know, on a, they're on a hamster wheel that's constantly speeding up, but they don't have a lot of time for that. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it's essentially how we've described the social contract is the, the seductive choice not to have to think for yourself. They <laughs> choose to obey Right. Against the agony of having to know your own, know yourself well enough to be a conscious, sentient, moral, ethical human being, because it does take all of that. It, you can't make a decision, I don't think, that will inevitably that will result in good if the being making that decision is full of paradox and um, self denial about their own darkness. You know what I mean? You need self awareness is a prerequisite of making rational and sentient actions into the, into the world we live in. Does that make any sense? No, I, I completely agree. Uh, I certainly know that for myself, I have to know my own dark side in order to fight some of the evil in the world, right? So if evil can be thought of as a, a really good fencer, like a really good swordsman, uh, then you have to study uh, sword fighting in order to fight that, that battle. And uh, so you kind of have to get into that kind of bloodlust yourself. You kind of have to, I think, get down and mix it up a little bit. And I think a lot of people who are thinkers are kind of refined and, and ivory tower. They don't really want to get down 
in the dirt, right? There's this old theory that, you know, if you wrestle with a pig in the mud, you both get dirty, but the pig enjoys it. And so somehow we should rise above it and so on. Uh, I think in the original uh, wording, it wasn't mud, but, uh, (laughs) but I think, I think that there is something about getting in, getting down and getting your hands dirty and doing some real, um, some of the dirty work around cleaning up the world, I think is important. And you can't do that if you keep yourself very refined and rarefied from your own dark side, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, if there is such a thing as utopia, I'm convinced it begins inside every individual. It's not an external thing, is it? No, I'm a bit, it's not. Um, Society, cynical uh, about the concept of utopia, actually. I don't think there is such a thing. No, I think there's happiness, which is a state that can be achieved, but it's, you know, it's almost impossible to maintain. I mean, uh, but, uh, I mean, at a perfectly consistent way. But there is... You know, there is integrity and there is consistency and there is moral courage and all the satisfactions that come from that. You can't directly control your own happiness any more than you can directly control your own health. But what you can do is you can cultivate the habits that lead towards better health. You know, some reasonable exercise, some reasonably good eating habits and getting sleep and blah, blah, blah. And the same thing, you can cultivate moral habits that will contribute significantly towards the achievement and maintenance of happiness. And I genuinely believe that our highest or you could say most abstract social institutions are fundamentally are modeled on our experiences well i mean primarily within the family uh, and that's something that uh, people don't take enough of a look at that uh, yeah. how we look at authority comes out of uh, how we're treated as children it's very hard to overturn that within your own lifetime without a lot of work which people a lot of people either neither have the stomach nor the time to pursue yeah I mean, it's basically the, the when you speak of the nanny state, that literally alludes <laughs> to what you're talking about. There it is um, it's a model based on our earliest experiences of life that's then manipulated by the powers that be. Dare I say it? Um, throughout the rest of it, it's a sort of model of human psychology, and there definitely seems to be some merit to it. I would have thought because even the Jesuits would say, "Give me the boy in uh, what is it?" First seven years. That's right, yeah. Hey. I couldn't remember the age. Yeah, give me give me a child for the first seven years and he's mine for life, right? Yeah. Uh, well, that, that pretty much says it all. I, I, do, I think that goes uh, to a huge degree to do with all things, so actually, interestingly enough. I've uh, recently reread a book called Nature via Nature, which explains the, uh, the way your environment actually shapes your genetic code from one moment to the next. It's not a fixed thing, but uh, constantly reactive with environmental input inputs that it receives and um by virtue of that i kind of started to realize that um I th- 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 there is no immutable fixed if you like it's a constant the world we live in uh, sort of jumping great leaps ahead here but the world we live in is a manifestation of what we do in it on an individual basis as much as anything else it's, a, it's about changing the... If you want to change the world, change yourself. A good friend of mine has, has his avatar, a little quote underneath it, is that he can't change the world, but he can change himself, and by doing that, affect the world that he lives in. Yeah, and if you can't achieve it for yourself, you have no right to demand it of others, right? So uh, the metaphor I've used before is, you know, if you live on an island where everybody's 400 pounds, and you're also 400 pounds, there's no point running around telling everyone to lose weight. I mean, I mean, you can do that, but it, it's ridiculous. Uh, but fundamentally, if you want the world to be free, 
then you have to be free yourself. You have to just lose the weight. And then people might say, hey, that guy can climb stairs. That guy can touch his toes. That guy can toss his children around, which makes them giggle and that's good. So maybe I want to lose some weight too. But you have to lead by example, not by words, uh, because people really only judge actions fundamentally. They don't judge your, what you say. So yeah, I mean, if you want freedom for the world, the first thing you need to be uh, is free yourself. And that is so hard for people who want to change the world, right? So people who, who think and who understand and who work from first principles and deal with objective evidence want to change the minds of others. We all do. We all want people to be, to be free and to be rational. But the problem is, is that people are quite opposed, for the most part, to being free and rational. And so we end up looking like the most enslaved people in the world because we're just banging our heads against the walls of other people's indifferences. So people look at us and say, well, damn, that guy doesn't look very free. I don't think I want his life. And I think that's the mistake that people make. You just have to live a kind of life that is incandescent and, uh, and beautiful and glorious and free. And then people may be interested and then they can ask you and then you can say, well, you know, this, I did this, that and the other and, and you're welcome to give it a shot and I'm happy to help if, out if I can. And that's – you can't lose then because either people are going to be inspired by you, in which case, great, you know, you, you, you've helped yourself and you've helped the world or they're not. But at least you're not going to be a slave to their indifference and rejection of reality. Uh, you, you, get, you get a happy life either way. It's like you get a cake called your happy life and maybe you'll get some icing called inspiring others. But either way, you get cake and that's not a bad thing to get. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I've been through that exact phase. I'm sort of just coming out the other side of that myself, Stephen, where I've oh, yeah, exhausted myself trying to get other people to do this and that and the other. And I've just realized that so long as I'm doing it myself, I've got my cake. You know what I mean? That, yeah, that is, I'll take the cake. I, I can't yeah. go far wrong than just conscious. Every decision I have to make, I choose to do the right thing rather than the pro-social thing, which is a perversion. So, yeah, I mean, and, even if you take something like cake and you run around trying to jam it down with people's throats, all they're going to do is bite you. Maybe you sit there yeah. saying, damn, this cake is good, yummy, right? And it's real, then they might wander over and want some. But that's really, uh, that's the best thing that I've uh, I've sort of figured, the best way i figured out to do it. It is. I mean, what... I suppose we should get on there. We sort of, I think, I wouldn't say dealt with the, the anarchy side of it, but um, can we move on over to the, intellectually onto the, the capitalist side of it, Stefan? Yes, I'm, please. I'm a peculiar, I really, I come from the position with this that fundamentally I would much rather consciously and voluntarily choose to collaborate with like-minded people to achieve a known end than to compete with them. Mm. Is that not the fundamental principle of capitalism, though, that it's all about the competition? Well, I would say not. Um, so uh, let's just take a biological analogy before I sort of explain. So uh, it's true if you look at, uh, you know, let's go back to our friends, the lions, right? So you look at a, a lion and an antelope, it's a win-lose thing, right? I mean, the lion eats the antelope. Uh, and, and the antelope dies, or the antelopes keep getting away, and then the lion dies. It's a win-lose thing. So we look at that as sort of uh, aggressive and, and destructive, uh, but necessary, I guess, for the natural world. Mm. However, if you look at the lion itself, think about all of the muscles and the nerves and the tendons and the bone and the marrow and everything that is working together in that. And think about, I mean, even the intestinal parasites that are in there helping the lion break down the antelope's food. Nature is hugely about cooperation. And there are a few places where there's a win-lose, right? So you think of two giant circles, right? So the, the giant circles are everything that is cooperating in that animal to keep it alive and to keep it functional. Mm -hmm. And all the animals that don't compete for each other 
that's but there's the small areas where uh, the animal's interests conflict. Now, if you look at capitalism, it's very similar, right? So I say this: I was a um, I was a capitalist. I I sort of uh, co-founded and was a, an executive at a company that uh, did fairly well. And yes, it's true that there were times when we would be doing a presentation and either we would win or some com- competing company would win. So that was a win-lose. But for the most part, it was not the case. For the most part, it was all cooperation. Sometimes we would even cooperate with our competitors. But for the most part, like we cooperated with the people who leased our uh, offices, with the people who sold our computers, with the people who pr- supplied electricity. There was no competition between us and those people. That was all cooperation. So I think it's important we, we look at the drama of win-lose in capitalism and we say, aha, it's dog-eat-dog, it's win-lose, and it's all about fierce competition. But we ignore that that competition is only possible because of a huge amount of cooperation on the part of everyone that makes those win-lose situations uh, even even possible. So I think that uh, you you can look at it as sort of win-lose competition. There's some aspect to that. And, and but that's not true of capitalism as a whole. That's true of everything, right? So if you marry some woman, uh, hopefully, right, she's off the market for everyone else. That's a win-lose situation. If you take a job, somebody else doesn't get that job. If you eat a muffin, some nobody else gets to eat that muffin, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so I think it's not specific to capitalism or a free market. It simply is the nature of life itself that you know, I get to use my lungs. Nobody else does, right? I mean, that's just the, the nature of of being alive. I think that it's it it's showed up or it's mirrored in the free market to some degree, but I think it's sort of fundamental to life as a whole. If that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I see what you say. I'm, uh, I just have. To, I mean, possibly it's my own trying to be as self aware as possible. Cap- the word capitalism itself carries such baggage, especially right. to like people from my background and whatnot. I'm I'm just oh, it's just. And like a four-letter word, if you know what I mean. Well, t- okay, but, uh, tell me, tell me what associations it carries from from your history, because I mean, I, I'm probably well, shared those. I'm just curious what they are for you. I, it's just that I see exploitation as being explicit in the notion of capitalism, and I've, it's just that the idea of exploitation is, I think, what I have the most difficulty with. Um, uh, it's not the the race as such, but the the reality of competition as a, a life model is that it rapidly becomes apparent that you don't have to win yourself. You can trip the guy next to, to you up. So, it, you know, it becomes more important, the competition, than the end goal, I think. I, I just, ideologically, I have a great deal of difficulty with it because per, for me personally, I like, I, I, I resist to the death being coerced into involving myself with something or forced, but I always think it's the most... The least wasteful use of energy is to collaborate towards a, an end goal where there's a meeting of minds voluntarily than to compete to achieve that goal and inevitably waste sort of um, energy in the competition, if you know what I mean. Okay, and I, I, I understand this uh, in the abstract. Can you just give me a bit more of a concrete example? I just want to make sure how, how it plays out in this worldview. Uh, well, see, I don't think it does play out in this world, Stefan. I mean, that's probably where it's, it's firmly posited in the realm of ideology because I think the the entire world moray that we live under, even in our own minds, is based on the, the fundamental notion of competition. I think competition implicit in it allows for an, a niche for exploitation or exploiters to um, benefit, whereas collaboration inevitably there's nothing in it for an exploiter because 
if you can't compel or manipulate the game of competition, there's no niche for you to get into it with uh, a collaborative effort, you know? Because the exploit is basically you're sat there not in any way collaborating towards the end goal. So they, they're self-evident and therefore not welcome. Whereas in a competition, everybody's running and tripping each other up and stuff, and nobody even notices that the exploiters are kind of the bookies of the race who always seem to win. Well, okay, but but I, I just need to understand these terms a little bit more. Uh, first of mm. all, when I sort of see, I don't know, uh, MP3 players, like I see, I don't see people tripping each other up. Like, so it's this, I guess, Creative makes some and, and uh, Sansa makes some and I, uh, Apple makes some and Microsoft makes some. They all, to me, are just offering a variety of things. And if I choose one MP3 player over another, um, I guess, I mean, one company wins and, and the other ones lose. But that's sort of na- the nature of, of choice. But how is it that they're tripping each other up or coercing each other in order to produce these products? Well, I think it, it's more a case of... Uh, you've got me now, see, because I'm, I'm thinking... I'm not trying to get you. Like, I'm, I'm, really, I'm not trying to sort of get you. I really really do want to understand where you're coming from because it's a, it's a very common perception, which is not to say that it's false or wrong or anything. I just I really try to understand in a concrete way where, where somebody's coming from. I think what it is, it's my experience of uh, in the business realm and stuff. Um, the, the general air seems to be that those who progress best are the ones that play the game, if you like, rather than they're much less focused on production of the end goal rather than how well they play the game. You know, office. You mean politics, sort of like playing that, office politics and stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, all that kind of thing. But just in general, there seems to be far too much energy devoted to their domination of the race and far less attention to the actual end goal. I mean, I've worked in the National Health Service where office politics is the industry that wait, they're wait, in. Wait, 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 wait. Are you calling the National Health Service the product of the free market? That, no, that, that well, can't well, be right. What I was actually saying is the National Health Service is, a, is the perfect demonstration of where what we think it's for and how it actually operates as a, an entity are just two completely different things. Yeah, look, and I, I think that um, sorry that I think if you look at um, if you look at the government like like the the French court of Louis the Sixteenth or something like that, then right. everybody who's really close to the king is kind of gross, right? They they just kind of corrupt. They're toadies. They're lickspittles. They're you know just nasty little sycophants. Yeah, sycophants, that kind of stuff, right? Whereas some guy who's you know working five hundred miles from the king in in a field is not political in that way he's just trying to you know get his crops out of the ground in one way or another yeah so uh, i think uh, this is not an excuse uh, for for capitalism as a whole but i think that you, it's worthwhile to draw a line between proximity to the state is not proximity to the free market is not proximity to voluntarism right so if you're looking yeah, no, at companies yeah i mean companies like that are involved in the really close and i've worked with these companies in my career um, the, the companies that are really up close to the military-industrial complex in the U.S., absolutely, they are weird and gross. And uh, you know, there was a company uh, in uh, in Canada that still is, of course. It was called Bell. Now, Bell was originally came out of the military, and it was just going through the process of losing its government monopoly on the phone service. And the culture in Bell, when I worked with them many years ago, was really weird. Because it was, A, it was ex-military, and B, they had a government monopoly, and C, it was just breaking up. 
So people were just panicking and, and they had to reinvent the whole culture. And the Bell has emerged as a much nicer company because it's lost its government monopoly. Because when you have a government monopoly, then your ability to play politics and manipulate and, tr- and provide votes and threaten politicians to maintain, that, pr- that promotes an entirely different kind of person inside yeah. the hierarchy than if you're you know, a relatively small software company really operating in the free market. A different kind of person tends to float up. So uh, I agree with you that uh, there's a lot of nasty, ugly politics, and a lot of people get promoted for reasons that are pretty nasty. But I would also hesitate to say that that's the nature of the free market. I would say that that may be the nature of proximity to the government plus uh, the status of corporation. And the status of corporation is a truly ugly invention of the government, right? So uh, it was invented by the government uh, for uh, in order to shield corporate executives from legal liability for their actions. And in return for that uh, exclusion of liability, the government demanded the right to tax corporations as if they're people. Uh, corporations would never exist in the free market uh, because you, you, you absolutely do not want the heads of companies or, or economic organizations to be immune from the results, right? So if a corporation makes money, then they all make money. And if the corporation loses money, then they don't have to give any of that money back. It's a one-way street. Profits yeah. accrue to the executives. Losses accrue to the shareholders and to the employees and to the customers. It is a wretched deal that is yeah. entirely artificial, created by the state, would never exist in the free market, but it's very often mistaken for a product of the free market. Yeah, okay, I can follow that line. Like, I agree with you that the, the very idea of giving corporations human um, rights almost it's just bizarre. a bizarre notion as well, because at the end of the day, it just allows them it, to create their own charter, essentially. Oh, there yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not. I mean, it's, it's like it's like giving me the ability to apply for a passport for my daughter's teddy bear. I mean, it's completely ridiculous or actually more like your imaginary friend can get a uh, can can enter into a legal contract. I mean, it's bizarre. But this is the kind of weirdness that you get. When you get uh, governments and massive, gross, corrupt financial organizations together is that they protect each other's interests at the expense of the general population. And I agree with you. That is completely exploitive and destructive. And at its root, it it is coercive because it is finally – it's the fist of the state that keeps all of this stuff going. But that to me is separate from voluntarism. And I agree with you that capitalism has taken – it has been taken to mean that uh, like the kind of – nastiness that goes on in state-sucking corporate fictional nasty <laughs> fascistic style enterprises but that's not how it worked when like prior to corporations that's not how it worked when when the world was a little bit more free than it is now and there's no reason to believe that it would uh, continue this way if the fist of the government were taken out of the face of the free market so actually i agree with you on that Stefan, because thinking about it, it's precisely because the national health service is um state-funded that the people in it are under no immediate um, pressure to perform, and that creates uh, the uh, fertile breeding ground for silly office politics and whatnot, whether they forgot that they're supposed to be dealing with the health care of patients coming through the place. You know, it's ancillary to their actual daily grind. It's all about corporate climbing. But- yeah, listen, and I'll, I'll just give you one final metaphor. And I, I obviously I completely agree with you because you seem to be agreeing with me. So that sounds like a good <laughs> thing to do. Otherwise, I'm going to look kind of silly. But the way I think of it is sort of like this. So there's imagine there's a small stream that's coming down the mountainside, right? And sort of at the top of this small stream, somebody takes a big 
giant vat of blood and pours it into the stream. Well, that's just one thing that happens at the very top of the stream, but the blood colors everything down the stream, right? So the fish die, I don't know, maybe the yeah. the lampreys or, or the, um, the leeches do well or whatever feeds on blood, the vampire bats, I don't know. But it changes the whole ecosystem of everything that is downstream. When the source of the stream gets polluted, everything downstream changes. And what, what happens is people look downstream and say, well, streams are bad because they have all of this bad ecosystem. They smell like blood. They're getting my feet all wet and uh, feet all, all, all dirty and, and red or whatever. They stain everything. But what they don't look is they don't look at the big vat of blood that was poured into the stream at the top. They look at everything downstream and say, well, this is the nature of being a stream rather than this is the nature of being a stream that has blood poured in at the top. And so when the source of a company's income is the coercive power of the state. And that, that applies to Wall Street. I mean, Wall Street right now, uh, you know, got bailed out and is now receiving millions and millions and millions of dollars in, in bonuses paid out to itself. They're not lending money to small businesses. Why? Because they can borrow money from the Fed at 0% interest and buy government bonds uh, at 3 or 4% interest. So they get that money simply by churning laundering money through the government apparatus. So they have nothing to do with the free market. Uh, all they are is just leeches hanging off the state, uh, being paid by the state to keep the financial system propped up for another few years while everybody pillages the treasury. But I think it's really important to look at if there's violence in the source or in a significant section of the source of a corporation's income, that is like putting that blood at the top of the stream. It changes everything downstream. You need to look at the source of the problem, which is the violence that the state has as a monopoly of both currency and regulation. And that changes everything in a corporate culture and not to mistake the effects of that bucket of blood in the stream for the bucket of blood going in the stream. If you take that bucket of blood from continually being poured into the stream, the stream uh, clears up. There's nothing in the nature of human economic interactions that require that kind of corruption. It just comes because there's this, you know, monstrous blood-sucking tentacled evil god called the state at the center of everything. Yeah, I like it. The, the thing is with with your description of anarcho-capitalism, Stefan, I, I, I felt myself agreeing with every stage of it to the point where I have to admit that capitalism without violence or coercion is a workable mechanism for humankind, I think, without a shadow of a doubt. Well, I appreciate that. That's a, I mean, that's a huge compliment uh, because it is a tough thing for people to conceptualize. Uh, I really appreciate that. I mean, that that sort of makes all the blood, sweat, and tears of, of putting it together worthwhile. So thank you so much for that very, very extreme compliment. For what it's worth, Stefan, for me to admit that capitalism might be just about um, not <laughs> implicitly corrupt from top to bottom and just... <laughs> needs to be got a shot of is a huge step for me even cognitively to take so i thank you for opening my mind to the possibility even um we're about bang on an hour now stefan um i'm tempted to ask you to stay on for um uh, further but i know you can spare us an hour tonight if you have one more question i can certainly do a little bit more i just want to make sure that i'm available for when my daughter springs up from her bed and demands her lunch Absolutely. Well, I would be the last person to try and uh, to get in the way of it, that. Um, I'm not actually sure. One last question to ask Stephen. <laughs> page through the there. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, right, I've got pages and pages of notes in front of me. Wait for one moment because there's it. Hey, take your time. That's the beauty of things not being live is you can edit this uh, and make me sound like a chipmunk. Excellent. Well, we will because I'll have to sort all this waffling out of it as well, mate. This is, make note of that, Stevie. 
I mean, one there's so many profound things in your work that I, I want to share with our listeners, but there's one specific one about when you're in a debate with some with anybody about the nature of the world and whatnot. The one question that really stuck in my mind was when you ask, do you support the use of violence against me because right. I disagree with you? And that question encapsulates one of the, the fundamentals of this whole issue. Do you want to um, sure. just expand on that for us, if you can, as a, as a final part of this, Stefan, because that would be um, brilliant if you could. I, I think it, it boils it down to simply one sentence. Well, I appreciate that. And it's not often I get to ask to expand on anything. So I'm just going to pick myself off the floor with shock. But uh, yeah, and there's I did a speech in New Hampshire last year, which people can find on YouTube uh, or under my YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash free domain radio uh, for more on this. But uh, basically, I mean, philosophers and the virtuous, we, we fight evil. I mean, that's that's our job. I mean, it makes us sound like superheroes. And in fact, we are, but uh, we fight evil. <laughs> now, the great problem with evil is that you can't fight it. And the reason you can't fight it is because the moment people see it as evil, it's done. It's lost its power. The moment that something is defined as evil, it can no longer be accepted by any sane moral human being. And so the challenge that we face is to expose evil. We don't fight it. All we have to do is switch the light on. Now, the light switch can be pretty damn hard to find sometimes, but all we are doing is turning on the lights because the moment that people see evil for what it is, then it loses all of its power and uh, people oppose it. If you think of the definition of slavery, slavery was considered a virtual re-education and Christianization of a subordinate uh, race called the blacks or whatever. And so it was considered to be a virtuous thing. The moment that people accepted that it was immoral, uh, it ended uh, pretty much throughout the world within a decade or two. And so the challenge with people who are opposing this thing called statism is to turn the light on so that people can see the immorality. And that's a really hard thing to do because the immorality is pretty abstract. Because everyone obeys uh, and pays their taxes for the most part, it's hard for people to say, well, it's coercion because everyone goes along with it. So in a sense, people say, well, I've never had the government put its gun in my face. So what are you talking about? And that's a perfectly rational, though, I would say somewhat limited way to respond to the to the issue. So I have been deploying something for the last couple of years. I call it the against me argument. And the basic thing is, okay, so somebody says, well, I think that uh, uh, we need the government so that we can uh, uh, educate poor children. And it's like, okay. And so normally people go into this argument about how education can be provided without the government, and then you hear all these objections, and then you hear about the 18th century and blah, blah, blah. But it does none of that really matters fundamentally. The only thing that fundamentally matters is, look, you want the government to fund education for kids. Yes. I say, well, I think that is very destructive. I think that is immoral and destructive. Am I allowed to disagree with you? Now, of course, somebody is going to say, well, yes, you're allowed to disagree with me. So then you can say, well, okay. Does it mean anything if I'm allowed to disagree with you, but I'm forced to obey you anyway? Right? So does it mean anything if a woman is allowed to divorce her husband but is thrown in jail if she divorces her husband. Uh, obviously, people are going to say, well, no, that doesn't. You know, if, you, if you're allowed to disagree with someone, you have to be able to act on that disagreement without being yeah. thrown in jail. Right. So then you say, OK, so you support me being able to disagree with you without being thrown in jail. Well, yes, then you're an anarchist because that's all it is. All anarchism is, is the freedom to dis disagree without being thrown in jail. That's all it is. 
And yeah, so, yeah, that's all it is. So if you believe that uh, some guy in Washington is this stone genius about educating kids, you mail him a check. That's great. I am allowed to disagree with you and not mail him a check, but rather do what I do on the web uh, in terms of podcasting where I give away all these podcasts and books for free because that's my way to spreading education in the world rather than uh, funding some guy I don't even know for some program I can't understand with all the political push and pull and power that goes on with that. Uh, I'm just not interested in that solution. I don't want the government to solve those problems because I actually want the problems to be solved, which the government will never do because violence never works in the long run. So that's all it is. It's like, so, okay, so if you are supporting a government program, then you are saying to me that if I disagree with you, I should be thrown in jail. And if I resist being thrown in jail, people can push guns into my face and blow me away if I resist. So it is taking this abstraction called government programs, government policies, government procedures, and regulations, and blah, blah, ministries, and this, all of that is nonsense. All of that is a big velvety shroud over the dead body of voluntarism. So all you say to people is forget about the content, just say, hey, am I allowed to disagree with you? If I'm not allowed to disagree with you, in other words, if I have to be thrown in jail for disagreeing with you, then I'm damn well not going to have a conversation with you at the moment pretending that we're having some kind of civilized discourse. Because if you're waving a gun around saying to people obey or die, I'm not going to support the illusion that you are a rational human being interested in a civilized debate. Now, if somebody says then I, you are allowed to disagree with me, right? So I'm for the Iraq war. Great. Send them a check. I am utterly opposed to the Iraq war, and I should be free to act on my conscience and not send them a check, which means no taxation to support the Iraq war. I am for the war on drugs. Great. You send them a check. You volunteer your time. You volunteer your basement so they can throw the beaten up people in there for having the wrong bits of vegetation in their pocket. Great. I do not support. I violently oppose, vehemently oppose the war on drugs. Therefore, I should be free to act on my conscience and not support it with enforced money and, uh, and enslavement. So it's really all it's coming down to is the freedom to disagree. And we all know that if uh, people were free to disagree, the government would end tomorrow. I mean, there's nobody in no I know alive who would say, well, I really want to help the poor. And so what I'm going to do when I die is I'm going to will all of my money to the government to use for the welfare state. I mean, they leave their money to the United Way. They leave their money to, I don't know, the Salvation or someplace, Salvation Army, someplace where there's some private mechanism at work, some efficiency mechanism at work. But there's nobody I know who says they really want to help the poor and therefore mails $1,000 to the government rather than to a private charity. That's how you know what people really believe. Yeah. Stephen Molyneux, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you tonight. Um, absolutely gobsmacked uh, i had so many questions <laughs> i was going to ask you but they're just i've become transfixed as i'm listening so i hope you'll apologize you mean you're just you're just shocked that i could do all of that in one breath i'm sort of like one of those trumpet players who could just keep playing the same note i think i breathe in through my ears and then out through my mouth <laughs> circular breathing technique something like that i've been working on it for a while and uh, it is kind of eerie uh so and what i aim to do is is to kill objections by just using up most of the oxygen in the planet and uh, i think so far it's been working all right so it may not seem like this is the end, but it is in fact the end of the interview. And thank you so much for TNS Radio for hosting this event.